Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27? As we have been working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, we have come to Matthew 27, which is really holy ground. It's Calvary ground, because we have been studying the passage where our Lord was crucified. It brings us to verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., and then from the sixth hour, noon, to the ninth hour, 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. Now, some critics say, well, this was just a, an eclipse, but look, it was Passover time. And Passover always takes place at the time of the full moon. And during a full moon, the moon is on the opposite side of the earth from an eclipse. Now, I think this was something supernatural, a supernatural darkness, almost as if, as one author put it, the creation could no longer bear to see its creator suffering on that cross and closed its eyes. Verse 46, we read, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you obviously have figured out that's a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1, a psalm that begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ends with the words, He has done this, verse 31. In the Hebrew, the phrase, has done this, is one word. It's the word asa in Hebrew. And it's only used one other time in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 11, where it is used to describe how Hiram finished the work of the temple which King Solomon hired him to do, finished it. With that in mind, we could translate the final words of Psalm 22, he finished, or it is finished. And so you have Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And ends with, it is finished. And in between, you have Jesus speaking through David a thousand years before he was crucified, while he's hanging on that cross looking down, describing what's going on around him, what he's feeling. I bring this up because if you want to get a look at the cross beyond what the gospel writers record, if you want to get a look at the cross from the eyes of Jesus while he's being crucified, look at Psalm 22. Very powerful psalm. And just as Hiram finished the work on the temple in Solomon's day, listen, a temple of stones, so true on the cross, Jesus finished the work necessary to fashion us into a temple of living stones, 1 Peter 2.5. Now, when Jesus hung on the cross, Paul says, Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's the key, guys. When Jesus hung on that cross and became sin for us, and some people think he turned into sin. He didn't turn into sin. He's the sinless Son of God. The sin of humanity was laid on him, okay, as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. But the way Paul puts it, it sounds like he turned into sin. He didn't, okay? But when Jesus became our sin offering is the idea. He was forsaken by God because, according to Habakkuk 1, verse 13, 
God is so pure and holy, he cannot look upon sin, and that simply means favorably in terms of fellowship. God cannot look favorably upon sin. God cannot have fellowship with somebody in sin, or in this case, that was having the sin of humanity put on them. And so the Father, when Jesus became sin for us, turned his face from the Son and broke fellowship with him for that time. Now you say, was that a big deal? It was a bigger deal than anybody in this room can ever comprehend. Do you realize that John begins his gospel with these words, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is a pre-incarnate title for Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Greek is literally, the Word was toward God. What does that mean? Well, the Word was, or Jesus Christ was eye to eye with, face to face with, or in perfect fellowship with God the Father. And the only time in eternity when that fellowship was broken is when Jesus hung on that cross and became sin for us. And I think that's what he feared most about going to the cross. I think that's why he sweat great drops of blood the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't think it was the pain of the cross he was fearing the most. I think it was the fact that he was going to be made sin, a holy, righteous God, and that his fellowship with the Father would be broken for the only time in eternity. What is that like? We have no comprehension of that. Now, verse 47, we read, Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Now, some of those standing near the cross misunderstood Jesus' words. They heard Eloi and thought Jesus was trying to call for uh, Elijah. They heard Eloi. My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He was calling to his father, but they thought he was trying to call for Elijah. You see, in Greek, the word Elijah sounds a lot like Eloi, a lot more than it does in English. But some of them thought, well, you know, he can't talk real well because crucifixion just creates a raging thirst. Your body is just going through convulsions and sweat pours out of a person, from what I understand, uh, dehydrating them terribly. And so somebody said, well, you know, maybe we could give him some sour wine. Uh, maybe that'll moisten his lips and vocal cords, and we can hear more clearly what he's saying. But, of course, that was a fulfillment of another psalm, Psalm 69, verse 21, where Jesus also speaking to the psalmist said, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, some of them said, hey, hey, leave him alone. He's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. See, they were looking for Elijah. Why were they looking for Elijah? Because the last book of our Old Testament, Malachi, in chapter 4, verse 5, God said he would send the nation Elijah at one point. And so they were looking for Elijah, especially around this time of the year, Passover. But uh, Jesus was not calling to Elijah. He was calling to his father. Now, as we said, Jesus hung on that cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And those six hours were divided into two parts. The first three hours were in light. The last three were in darkness. During the first three hours, Jesus spoke three times. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Then he said to the thief next to him, who had repented for his sins, and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then finally, 
he said to his mother, because Mary was standing there at the foot of the cross, and so was John, the apostle. And so at one point he said to Mary, Woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. You know, as I read this, I realize that here he is dying on the cross. One of the most painful deaths ever devised by man. Crucifixion. And all he's thinking about is other people. It's amazing. That at this time in his life, all he's thinking about is others. Those that put him on the cross unjustly, Father, forgive them. To the thief next to him who had repented of his sin, today you'll be with me in paradise. Take comfort. This isn't going to last very long, and then you're going to have an eternity of joy. And then to his mom, he looks at his mom and says, basically, Mom, I'm not going to be here anymore. So, John, you take her with you. Take her to be with you. She's your mother now. And Mary, this is your son now. The Gospels say that from that day on, John took her to live with him and took care of her the rest of her life. Just thinking about others. That was our Lord. And then from noon to 3 o'clock, darkness fell. Yes, darkness on Jerusalem and its suburbs, but uh, historical records indicate that it might have affected a much larger area than that. The Greek word for land is a word that could be translated earth, earth, indicating that the darkness could have affected the whole eastern hemisphere. In fact, the early church father Origen reported a statement by a Roman historian who mentioned this darkness. There was also a supposed report from Pilate to Emperor Tiberius that alluded to the emperor's knowledge of a certain widespread darkness, even claiming it was from noon to three. So this was common knowledge back then. And there's other sources we could, we could claim, but uh, I believe this was a supernatural darkness that covered a wide area. Maybe, again, the whole eastern hemisphere. Now, during the three hours of darkness, the Lord spoke three more times. He said, I thirst. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he said, it is finished. When he uttered those final words, it is finished, he dismissed the spirit and died. At that moment, two miracles took place simultaneously. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and there was an earthquake that split rocks and threw open numerous tombs that were in the area. There was a third miracle that was delayed until Jesus rose from the dead, and that was that some believers in Jesus that had died and were buried in those tombs that were opened up after he rose from the dead, they were resurrected as well. We read this in verses 51 to 53. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints, those who had believed in Christ, who had fallen asleep, were raised. And coming out, uh, the, the, fallen asleep means they died in Christ, okay? They weren't just sleeping, they died in Christ and were raised from the dead. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's a little weird. Can you give me some more on that? No. I don't know anymore. Commentators don't know anymore, okay? I wish Matthew would have given us just a little more. Like what? Well, I would like to know, were these saints raised like Lazarus was raised, only to die again? He was raised physically from the dead after four days in the tomb. Of course, he died again, all right? Um, were these folks raised like that and eventually had to die again? Or, as I believe, they were raised with glorified bodies and um, were taken to heaven with Jesus when he ascended back 
to his father after his resurrection. Now you say, why do you believe that? Well, I believe it in, to a great degree because of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. He said in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ is risen from the dead because some in Corinth were challenging that, that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. We'll talk more about that next week. There's a lot of theories out there as to what happened to Jesus, but he didn't really rise from the dead. And so some of the Christians in Corinth had gotten some bad teaching. So Paul fires them off a letter and talks to them about this. And, that, and his conclusion is, or the climax of what he says is, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ. You see, Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead on the Jewish feast of first fruits. You say, well, what is that? Well, it was a feast that took place in the spring of the year, a time when the first stalks or first fruits of the barley crop would begin to come up out of the ground. Barley was planted in the winter. It was a winter crop. And as such, it was the first crop to be harvested in Israel. Spring would bring the first fruits of this crop. And what they would do is they would take the first stalks of the barley harvest, they would cut them off, they would bring them down to the tabernacle, and then later the temple, and they would be offered to God. The idea was you always offer to God the first fruits, not just of your crops, but of your time, of your resources, everything. God was first. And when you honored God by giving him what was first, he would bless your life in other ways. And so the idea was, Lord, you're giving us this crop. This first fruit belongs to you. We're going to bring it down and offer it to you. And the idea was God would receive it. And through it, he would guarantee a bumper crop was coming. Uh, a bumper crop of barley that would come up out of the ground by the time of the great harvest. So what I think what happened is this. I think that Jesus rose first, and then these that Matthew mentions rose right after him. And when Jesus ascended back to his Father, these all went with him with their glorified bodies, and altogether they presented themselves to the Father as the first fruits of another harvest that was coming, a great harvest of souls that was guaranteed to happen. Uh, we call it the rapture, right? All because of what Jesus did. Didn't Jesus say, because I live, you will live also? You see, that was his promise to all of us who are believers in him. I'm going to be raised from the dead someday. And when I'm raised from the dead and I go back to the Father, it's guaranteed you're going to be raised from the dead and someday you're going to be taken to be with me forever. A great harvest of souls would be coming, would come up out of the ground, out of the graves, and be taken to heaven someday. Now, that was the first miracle. The second miracle that took place when Jesus died was an earthquake. Again, verse 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. The earth quaked. You know, earthquakes were not seen on the earth until after the fall. After the fall. After man fell, God has used earthquakes from time to time throughout the centuries. Not always, but many times as a judgment upon man for his wickedness and rebellion. Locally, but guys, it's coming a day when it's going to be globally. Globally. See, Hebrews 12, verses 26 to 27 tells us that before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom upon the earth, that God is going to shake this planet so violently that everything that is material is going to be destroyed, and only that which is spiritual is going to remain. What do I mean? 
the things you do for Jesus, uh, the people that belong to Jesus. I mean, this world is going to be judged. Why? Because this world is a wicked place, and people have turned the world into an idol. And yeah, literally, there are those who worship Gaia, uh, who is the earth goddess. But the things of the earth, Satan is the god of this world right now. And has orchestrated the whole world to appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And materialism is a big part of that. Okay, And so at one point, because of man's idolatry in worshiping the creation rather than the creator, he is going to destroy this world with a violent earthquake. In fact, Revelation, the book of Revelation talks about three earthquakes that are going to happen during the last seven years before Christ returns, during the uh, Great Tribulation period. Three earthquakes. And the last one is so powerful, Isaiah tells us, that it's, it will split the earth wide open. Split the earth wide open. Now, and, and I want you to kind of see how the Spirit is, is contrasting this earthquake, which was local, but allowed some of the saints of Jesus to be resurrected, taken to heaven with him. It's a good resurrection, right? Resurrection of the righteous. There is coming another resurrection preceded by a great earthquake. But it's not going to be a good resurrection. It will be the resurrection of the unrighteous, the rebels, at which time the graves of these unbelievers will be opened. And they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to be judged. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 5, if you want to turn there. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he said to them in verse 28, Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves, all who are in the graves, will hear his voice and come forth. Not just Lazarus now, but everybody, okay? Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, what he doesn't tell us in John 5, but we later on learn in Revelation 20, is that these two resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, are separated by at least a thousand years. The resurrection of the righteous happens at the time of the rapture. Then we go through the, the tribulation period and through the whole millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years, and then is the second resurrection, the resurrection of the unrighteous, where they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, who is called the righteous judge of all the earth, the one who wanted to be their loving Savior when they were alive, but they rejected now will become their righteous judge. And it's a terrifying thing, the Bible says, the fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ, because there's no forgiveness apart from Christ. And they will stand before Jesus, the judge of all the earth, at what's called the great white throne judgment. Read Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. And they will have their day in court. Oh, when I die, I'll stand before God, and I'll tell them all the good things I've done. Okay. Well, you know, I know that's how you're feeling, but the case has already been decided. You're guilty. The whole human race was declared guilty in the Garden of Eden. And all that's left now is we're all under condemnation. And it's only the blood of Christ that allows us to be pardoned. And if a person doesn't receive Christ's payment for their sins, then, of course, when they stand before him on that day, it's not to plead their case. The case is over. The verdict is in. You're guilty. That's just the sentencing phase when you stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. And I pray nobody ever here does stand before him at that day. Because there's no appeals. It's just going to be, here's how much punishment you will bear for the life that you've lived. And then everyone who stands before him at the great white throne judgment will be 
cast into the lake of fire or hell for eternity. Now, the third miracle that happened the moment Jesus dismissed his spirit and died was that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. You know, Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. So his reference to the curtain of the temple is one that would have been readily understood by all of his Jewish readers. They all knew what he was talking about. Now, we have to kind of understand what's going on here. See, the, the actual temple building, and don't forget now, the temple had a precinct. It was several acres, okay? And sometimes called the temple, but it was the temple precinct and then the temple proper. The temple proper was the actual temple building, and that's what he's talking about here. The actual temple building was divided into two rooms. The first was the holy place, and then the second room was the most holy place or the holy of holies. The first room contained three pieces of furniture. The table of showbread to the right, the menorah to the left, and straight ahead in front of the curtain or the veil that led into the most holy place, you had a small golden altar. And that is where the priests burned incense for the people as they prayed for them, the people of Israel. The second room, the Holy of Holies, originally contained the Ark of the Covenant. Of course, it was lost around the time of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the rabbis say we know where it is and at the right time we'll bring it out. I doubt if they know where it is, but they claim to know where it is. Many believe Jeremiah took it and hid it because he had been prophesying for 40-some years the Babylonians were coming and Israel needed to repent, but they didn't repent. So some believe that Jeremiah actually took it and hid it, and some believe that there are people who know where it is. When they came back from the Babylonian captivity, they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. So as they refurbished the temple, they put a big block of granite there in the Holy of Holies. It wasn't the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant uh, was originally there in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was a small rectangular box that measured 3 foot 9 inches long by 2 foot 3 inches wide by 2 foot 3 inches high. It was covered with gold inside and out and topped with a lid made of pure gold called the Mercy Seat. Now, the top of the mercy seat, there were two cherubs, angels, one at each end, facing each other with their heads bowed down and their wings outstretched upward, touching nearly tip to tip right above the mercy seat. And it was on the mercy seat between the cherubim that God was understood to symbolically dwell. That was his throne on the earth. Of course, it was just a model of his real throne in heaven. The earth is not his throne. Uh, his throne is in heaven. The earth is his footstool. But it was symbolic that God dwelt there on the mercy seat. It was his throne on the earth. It was called the mercy seat, by the way, because once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, and only once a year, the high priest was allowed to enter through the veil into the Holy of Holies, and only after many sacrifices, many ceremonial washings, many changes of clothing, because he had to make sure his sin was really atoned for, because if there was something he didn't confess or whatever, you know, he entered in the presence of God, he'd be struck dead. Well, how do you know he was struck dead? Well, they put bells on the bottom of his rope and a, and a rope around his ankle so that when he went into the Holy of Holies, you're, if he was moving around, you heard the little tinkling there. Okay, he's okay. Tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. He's okay. He's good, good, you know. If the tinkling stopped, you thud. Oh, that's bad. Pull. You didn't want to go in there and get him. You'd be struck dead too. Pull him out with the rope, you know. <laughs> Lost another one, but, you know, that kind of thing. Who's next? I'm not going. I don't want the job, you know, that kind of thing. But the idea was that once a year, the high priest 
would go into the Holy of Holies after having sacrificed for the people, uh, the animals. And he would take the blood of the offering, the sacrifices, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And the idea was that that atoned for the sins of the nation and allowed God to show his people mercy and not bring judgment. This veil sounds a little misleading. Oh yeah, there was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. We think of a little curtain you throw to the side there. Uh, Nothing could be farther from the truth. This veil, quote-unquote, separating the two rooms was literally a wall of woven fabric, one layer on top of another. From what I have been able to gather in my studies, it measured 60 feet high by 30 feet wide by 12 inches thick. It was made of 72 braids, each consisting of 24 cords, The veil was so heavy, it took 300 priests to hang the thing. And it was really hard to wash. They had to build a really big... No. I don't know how they kept the thing clean, okay? But this veil was a reminder of how sin had erected a wall of separation between God and man. And how only the high priest could approach God and make atonement for the people, but only after the blood was spilled the animals were sacrificed. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now look, when Jesus died on that cross, before he died, he said, it is finished, bowed his head, dismissed his spirit. At that very instant, God tore the veil from top to bottom, signifying that, you know what? The old sacrificial system is now over with. See, the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin anyways. They could only temporarily cover sin until the ultimate sacrifice could be made. Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who alone could not cover, but would take away our sins. And so when the Lord ripped that curtain from top to bottom, he was saying, it's over with. The priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple itself, the old covenant, the old system, it's over with. It's all been fulfilled. Do you know that Jesus Christ died? He picked the time of his death, didn't he? He dismissed his spirit. He said, it is finished, dismissed his spirit, and he died. He died at what time? 3 p.m., right? Do you know that was exactly the time when the priests were offering the evening sacrifice for the people? They were there in the temple when they heard that thing rip. That thing must have made an incredibly loud noise as God ripped the thing in two. What was God saying? Open house. You don't need a priest anymore as a go-between, a mediator to come to me. Jesus Christ, my son, is your mediator. You have bold access to me through his blood. And so God tore the thing open and said, anyone who now receives my son is worthy to approach me directly. You know what the priest did? They sewed the thing back up. They sewed it back up. Because man does not want to let go of his boasting. Look what I do for God that earns me a right to approach him. That's what religion's all about. It's all about what I'm going to do for God to earn his favor. How wonderful I am, how many things I will do to earn God's favor, to earn a way to, into his presence. See, grace takes all that away, doesn't it? We're saved by grace. Not by religious works, rituals, ceremonies, etc. Grace is a free gift. Grace is, believe in my son, I will give you eternal life. 
People, a lot of people don't like that. They work very hard at their religious system. You know, they don't want the boasting taken from them that they can stand before God someday and boast what a wonderful person they were, and they really earned heaven. Paul says, you know what? Anybody who thinks they're earning heaven will never get heaven. If you don't come bent low in humility and receive it as a free gift, you're not going to get it. And so there was no more need for temples, priests, altars, sacrifices. Jesus had finished the work of salvation on the cross, and that's exactly why he said it is finished right before he dismissed the spirit and died. And at that moment, again, the veil of the temple was torn in two, signifying the work of redemption was done. The payment for sin had been made. Now, I love how Paul weaves this into a cultural thing. Okay, we're talking about how Jesus paid. Paul was a master preacher. And a good preacher can draw an illustration or, or an example of something he's trying to communicate from everyday life. Paul was a master teacher. And he took something that was common knowledge to everybody living in that day to kind of illustrate how Jesus Christ took all of our sins and nailed them to his cross and removed them. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. And let me read this to you out of the New Living Translation. Colossians 2, starting at verse 13. Paul said, You were dead because of your sins. Yes, at one time we were all dead in trespasses and sins as unbelievers. He goes on to say, Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it, all these charges, all the crimes against God through sin, he took it all away by nailing it to the cross. When Paul said in verse 14 that Jesus took our sins out of the way by nailing them to his cross, he is referring to a practice. Again, they would have all known, understood, a practice by which guilty criminals paid their debt to society. In Paul's day, when a person was convicted of a crime or crimes against society, the authorities would take all those crimes and write them on a piece of parchment and nail them to the door of the prisoner's dungeon. When he had finished paying for his crimes, it would take that piece of parchment and write across the bottom to Telestai, which meant paid in full. That parchment was then given to him. It became his receipt, you might say, his proof that his debt to society for all the crimes he had committed had been paid. See what Paul's doing? He was saying that we had a ledger. It was handwritings of ordinances that were against us. These were all the crimes we would ever commit. Not just up until the day we got saved. We would ever commit in thought, word, and deed against the Holy God. These were all written in our ledger. Jesus took that and nailed it to his cross and paid for every one of them through his blood. And when he died, he said from the cross, it is finished. The Greek is tetelestai, paid in full. Paid in full. That's why God hates religion. That's why God hates legalism. Legalism, religion, which says, oh yeah, Jesus did most of the work. But you know what? I've got to complete it. I've got to add good works to it. I've got to live a holy life or else I will lose it. It's like saying, move over, Jesus. 
I mean, you did most of it, but I got my part. I got to do, I, I got to add to the cross. I've got to do good works to secure the gift that you're offering. You can't earn a gift. Read Romans 4. Paul said either you earn salvation or it's a free gift. But it can't be both. You can't earn a free gift. Religion, legalism tries to earn what Jesus Christ died and paid for in full. It is finished, paid in full. We don't need to add to it. We can't. And those who try, Paul said in Galatians 5, if you try to add one ounce of works to a billion pounds of grace, you negate grace. You separate yourself from Christ. His sacrifice will do you no good. You cannot mix one bit of human effort into your salvation to try to earn it in any way, shape, or form. If you do, God won't give it to you. Well, what was the result of this? I mean, Jesus dying the way he did. What a powerful scene this was. Well, verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, does this mean they were saved? Not necessarily, but it definitely demonstrated that the events of Jesus' crucifixion made a powerful impact on the unbelievers that were standing there by the cross that day. And I think, and I hope I should say, so much of an impact that eventually they did wind up becoming believers. It's a good start. Okay, uh, They often the right foot. They, they understand, they believed who he was, Son of God. Whether they grasp fully the implications of why he had to die, I don't think so. But if they were open and wanted to have more information on the whole deal, believe me, God got them the information. God will never let anybody go to hell who wants to know the truth. He'll get you the information. I don't care if he's got to send an angel from heaven to give you the gospel. He will give it to you. And as we talked a few weeks ago, he's doing that very thing all around the world. He is coming to people in dreams, in visions, through angels, and sharing the gospel because we're getting that close to his return. So these pagan soldiers came to the realization that this was truly the Son of God. Their only mistake, he wasn't was the Son of God, he is the Son of God. They thought the Son of God was dead. No, if we're going to say he died, but that's not where the story ended. But these pagan soldiers weren't the only ones standing by the cross when Jesus died. Verse 55, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now the only disciple who was there at the cross, as we said earlier, was John. Judas had hung himself by this time, and the other ten disciples had fled, hiding out for fear that they were next. Rome was going to come for them next. John was the only one standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. And again, Jesus looking down at John says, John, look, there's Mary. You take her to be with you. She's your mom now. Mary, John's your son. And John took care of her the rest of his life, the rest of her life. Um, these women were a part of Jesus' ministry in some way. Uh, three women are named. First of all, Mary Magdalene, who many think was a prostitute. I don't know how that happened. Uh, a lot of people think Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. She's never called a prostitute in the scriptures. She says she was a woman 
in whom there were seven demons that Jesus cast out. So Jesus cast out seven demons. I think that's worse, worse than being a prostitute. Obviously, Mary was fooling around with the occult. You, I don't believe you can be demon-possessed unless you open a door. And I think the devil is doing a great job with young people today uh, making uh, evil look cool. A lot of young people are getting involved in the occult, witchcraft, and so on, because it's cool. It promises power over enemies and to make people of the opposite sex fall in love with you, that kind of thing. But when you open a door to the devil through those things, you give him license to come in, and when he comes in, he takes control. And I believe that a lot of things we're seeing today, especially among young people, the suicide packs, the violent crimes, where people are just killing, you know, whole groups of people just for no reason before they kill themselves, I think it's demonic. I think it's demonic. I think a lot of these kids are fooling with things. Of course, a lot, you don't hear a lot of what they're fooling with in the newspapers, but I'm telling you right now, if you knew, if you knew these kids doing some of these things, you, you would know they were into some dark things. So Mary had opened the door in some way to the occult. Seven demons had come inside to possess her. What a horrible reality, a horrible life that would have been. And yet Jesus delivered her completely, and she loved him completely. She was totally devoted to her Lord. There was also Mary, the mother of James and Josie. Some believe this was Mary, Jesus' mother. Jesus had four stepbrothers. Two of them were named James and Josie's. Uh, others say, no, this was a different Mary. It could be. But we know his mother was standing there at the cross because we just talked about it. John took her and brought her home to live with him. Also, Salome. Who was Salome? Well, she was the mother of James and Josie's or John. Uh, also, she was the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. So Salome was Jesus' aunt, and John and James were his first cousins. You remember it was Salome who at one point came to Jesus and said, Lord, I got a little request. Okay, what is it? Well, it's no big deal. I just want to know if my boys can sit one on your right hand, the other on your left hand in the kingdom. No big deal. He says, look, aunt, that's not mine to give. That's only for my father to give. Then he turns to James and John and says, look, you guys, uh, are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink from and, you know, die the death I'm about to die? Oh, yeah, we're able. Sure. You know, no, no idea what they were talking about. Of course, I wonder how Solomon felt now. She asked for greatness for her sons and saw that Jesus, the one she was asking this from, was on the cross dying. I don't know if she realized that to be really great in God's kingdom, it's not about wearing a crown. It's about bearing a cross. Now, let me just close by saying this. Those that were standing there that day at the foot of the cross, especially those who knew and loved Jesus, they had no idea at that moment how the cross, which, guys, was a symbol of shame, death, defeat, and so on, how the cross would eventually be seen as the greatest symbol of victory and blessing the world would ever know. All because of what Jesus did on a hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Of course, at that moment, Jesus' followers knew only one emotion, great sorrow. He had said to them during the last discourse he gave them in John 16, he said, soon you're going to be very sorrowful, but shortly after that your sorrow will be turned into great joy. The only emotion they were feeling right now was great sorrow. Little did they realize three days from this point their sorrow would be turned into
great joy. As we'll see next time. But you know, guys, when Jesus hung on that cross, these folks were not thinking like spirit-filled believers today. The resurrection took them by surprise. So in their minds, this was it. And I'm wondering, as Jesus hung on that cross and said those final words before he dismissed the spirit, I'm wondering if he said, it is finished. And I'm, I'm sure he yelled that. I'm wondering what they would have heard, how they would have interpreted that. Was that the final cry of a man whose life was snuffed short before he reached the fullness of his greatness? Because, you know, in their mind, he was the Messiah who was going to bring the kingdom. Did they hear, it is finished, in the sense, it's over, my life has been cut short, my goals and dreams have ended, it's finished. I don't know. We know what he meant. We know what he was saying is, no, no, the story's not over. My life is not over. My ministry has not ended. The work of redemption has come to an end. The blood has been shed. The payment for sin has been made. It is finished. Remember that when you see a situation in front of you that causes you to feel like it's all over with. I don't know what dreams you have or what goals or whatever, but life can often take a turn that we didn't expect, and we're facing now a situation where all our hopes, all our dreams have been dashed, and you're prone to say, it's over, it's finished. Can I encourage you to take to heart the words of an old preacher who said, it might be Friday, but Sundays are coming. Sundays are coming. And I don't know what you're going through right now and how black it looks. Just like those disciples who thought it's over. Well, it was Friday. Although I believe he was crucified on Thursday. But it, okay. It was Friday. But Sunday was a coming. In just a few days, Jesus was going to turn their sorrow into great joy. You know what? Didn't he turn the sorrow of Joseph into great joy in just a matter of days? In the Old Testament? Doesn't our God take the very sorrows that come upon us and use them to turn our lives into something incredible for His glory? The very sorrow, the very thing that brought the sorrow brings the great joy. So embrace your tribulations. Embrace your adversities. Embrace your sufferings. It sounds a little strange, a little weird. And this would only resonate with spirit-filled Christians. Because you understand what I'm talking about. We can't wear the crown until we first endure the cross. And Jesus said, unless a grain of, grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will abide alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. We can only be effective after we've been hurt. As one stately old minister said to his wife after they heard a young man preach, and he was pretty, he was pretty good. And she said to her husband, he is a great preacher. And he said to her, he will be after he suffers a while. We have to suffer if we're going to really serve. May God give us the grace to accept that. Because I'll tell you what, that is what the Christian life is all about. If we don't suffer with him, we will not reign in glory with him either. May God give us the grace to understand that.
Father, we thank you for your great love, your great sacrifice you gave your Son, your only begotten Son, sinless Son. You gave him for sinners. And Jesus, you were no victim. You gave your life freely for us who were sinners because of your great love. And Lord, teach us that before we wear, we can wear a crown, we have to endure the cross. Before we can know resurrection, we first have to experience Gethsemane. The resurrection power only comes after we have been crucified to self. Give us grace to understand that. And Lord, we love you and thank you. We love you and thank you for what you did for us, Lord, and what you continue to do. You ever live to make intercession. Your ministry is not over with. You continue to pray for us that our faith fail not, that we come through adversity strong, and we strengthen our brethren after we do. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.